Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm glad to open up the scripture. Um, Thanks for joining us, whether you're in person or on YouTube. Um, And uh, we just would love, if you're in person, you can swing by the welcome table. Uh, We'd love to, especially if you're new, uh, to sign up and for emails, maybe grab a mug. Uh, maybe if you've never got a mug, this is your opportunity. It's just right there on the welcome table. Um, maybe you need a new one. So also, if you're here again, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you feel welcome. And if you're online with us for the first time new, or maybe you feel new, um, you can always email me, sit at northcrosschurch.com, or the church at info at northcrosschurch.com. So around December, in anticipation of Christmas, we, the historical and global church, have done the celebration, a season called Advent. Advent is a season of waiting. We're together watching and waiting for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to be born, and we're watching for him to be born. We're rehearsing that longing for King Jesus' first coming as a baby, but then there's a sense that we're longing for King Jesus to come again. Uh, to come a second time and to bring full measure of justice and peace and joy and glory. For Advent and also for Christmas this year, along these lines, we are looking at Luke's chapters one and two, and we're studying them together in order to look at different people's trembling encounters with God's message and God's messenger. And then there and our need to sing through that process to sing about what it means to encounter the living God. And really that's what we're up to um, in the series. And this morning we're gonna look at Mary's trembling encounter with God's message and messenger, Gabriel. And we're looking at Luke chapter one. So would you pray for me though, before we do that and pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning. Father, um, there's a lot going on in our hearts and minds, um, and we pray that you'd help us to be still before you. We're shaken. Uh, Some of us are very troubled. Some of us just feel unsteady. 
Um, would, you, would you clear the glass? Would you see to the bottom of us? Would you change us by your word? And Lord, we pray that we'd see you. We'd see you clearly. We'd see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. More believable and beautiful is the eyes of our hearts as a result of sitting at your feet and learning from you. And I pray that you would meet us even in this moment with your word um, and you dwell richly with us. We ask this in your name and by your spirit, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I'm not particularly proud of this, but um, when I was in middle school, I was one of those cool but sometimes mean kids. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Some of you are going there in your minds and hearts, it's hard. Uh, I hung out with the wrong crowd um, and I got in trouble a lot. Uh, one little story that's, that is too long to tell the whole of is just that uh, I actually, my friends and I got kicked out of middle school choir for pretending to be cats, <laughs> weekly. Uh, so anyway, just more of that story. Anyway, if we, com- if we compared middle school to the African savanna and we compared, I don't know, popularity to the predator-prey food chain, I was not a lion, but I was also not a gazelle. Um, I was somewhere in between, probably something like a hyena. <laughs> you know, that laughs a lot, uh, laughs a lot with and at my friends who are the bad kids including me. One day after a typically disruptive day of seventh grade, um, nothing unusual, but pretty bad. My homeroom advisor and English teacher, Mr. Fulford, came, uh, kind of gave me the gesture and I walked up to his desk and he took me aside. He had these two desks sitting face to face in the side of the classroom. And so we sat down together face to face in this classroom while everyone was pretending to study in in quiet study hall. And um, I thought, as I sat down, I'm a goner. Uh, a few of my friends were on the verge of not being allowed to come back to the school the next year. Um, and I thought this was my, at best, last warning, my last chance to get my act together. <laughs> Instead, Mr. Fulford told me, congratulations, Sid, you've been selected as a star writer. We want you to produ- participate in a fiction writing contest for prizes. And I went, in the words of this past this morning, I was greatly troubled at the saying. <laughs> and I began to wonder, what is the catch here? Is there a catch? Is like star writers competition just another word for detention? You know, is that what's going on here? And so I showed up after school a few weeks later with a group of other students. And sure enough, we wrote stories. And sure enough, I lost and did not win any prizes. <laughs> But I will say this, I will tell you that getting nominated and called a star writer pretty much changed my life. I went from not trying or caring about school that much to caring deeply about learning and even good writing. And the New Testament begins with a similar kind of story, right? Mary, who was likely somewhere between 12 and 14 years old at the time, is called over to the side to have a one-on-one conversation. And that conference was both greatly troubling as well as life-changing. Life-changing not just for one seventh-grade-aged girl, but also for billions upon billions of lives forever after. But what was both so troubling and life-changing about that time? What happened in that private moment, in that conference in a room in Nazareth nearly 2,000 years ago that changed everything? Well, 
God, through the angel Gabriel, told Mary that she had found favor with God. That's what changed her life and has changed all of our lives. She's found favor with God. And he selected Mary to participate in this plan that would provide God's favor to the rest of the world. The birth of Jesus Christ, the son of the most high. So in a sentence, chapter one, verses 26 through 38, God's telling us this. God has offered his favor, his intimate presence, his unqualified approval for you. Through Jesus's incarnation, God becoming a baby boy. And we live out of that relationship status by surrendering our ambitions for our lives to God. That's a mouthful. So let me just make it a little simpler. God has offered his favor through Jesus's incarnation and we live out of that relationship status by surrendering our lives to God. Mary's story is this kind of back and forth conversation of God through the angel Gabriel to Mary. And it's a very personal exchange and we can kind of understand it in three, uh, take, take away three things about this conversation, about what God's favor means and about who Jesus is. And they're on your outline that's projected behind me, but also in, in your bulletin. First, verses 26 through 33, we learn what qualifies us for God's favor. Second, in verses 34 through 37, we learn how God's favor works. And third and finally, in verse 38, we learn so what? So what do we do about God's favor in our lives? So uh, let's begin with the beginning, verses 26 through 33, and we're gonna look at how Luke describes the qualifications to get God's favor. So if you turn there with me, if you would. We saw this two weeks ago, but Luke actually begins the story of Mary and Jesus' birth way earlier in this, this chapter. It doesn't begin at chapter 20, at verse 26. He begins with the story of Jesus' birth with the story of John the Baptist's birth and the priest Zechariah in the temple meeting Gabriel. And you see, Luke does this thing on purpose where he uses the same story structure and even the same wording for both John and Jesus' births. And he does this on purpose because Luke is at pains to show us how unlikely it is that Mary would be the parent of God. Whether we've read the Bible a lot or never before, we expect someone like Zechariah. You know, he's a religious priest. He's chosen by divine lots. He burns incense and prays in the holiest place on earth. And we expect him to be responsible for Jesus. We think he's the guy. And we expect the angel to heap praises on Zechariah, to tell a devout social elite like Zechariah, not Mary, that he's the one who's highly favored of the Lord and God is with him. But that's not how the story works. It does the opposite. It, show, it sets up that expectation. God shows us, he chooses Mary to parent Jesus. And we see why in verses 26 and 27. There we see Mary's resume. This is her LinkedIn profile stats, right? This is her, how many stars does she have as a rating to get into the college football network? Okay, this is what she has. She's from Nazareth. Eh, not exactly the religious center of the ancient world like Jerusalem. Not really the political center either like Rome. Probably wasn't on the Roman maps, most of them. Isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It's a byword. One of Jesus' own disciples later describes Nazareth in all sincerity as saying, can anything good 
come out of Nazareth. <laughs> and so Mary's hometown really isn't the social leg up that we expect and that she was looking for. But what about her social status? Maybe Mary's a small town girl making good, right? Verse 26 and 27 tell us the virgin, this virgin is engaged to a man named Joseph. This means she's probably between 12 and 14 years old. She's middle school aged, who is marrying up to become a poor carpenter's wife. And then Mary was a woman in a land and time when the most religious men woke up every morning and prayed this daily prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Their words, not mine. So God tells Mary, she's poor, she's young, she's from a backwater, provincial, lowly, she's a woman nobody, and she is favored by God. He is with her, he is for her. And even Mary, in the words of verse 29, is greatly troubled at the saying. She's trying to do the math. Why in the world am I chosen to do this? Why would God pick me of all people? She's looking for the catch. She's pouring over the small print of the terms of usage contract with Gabriel. And if we're honest, we should be greatly troubled too. Look, many of us are familiar with the story. We're not that surprised that God chose to rejoice in and delight in Mary, but that he might do the same to us, even in our worst days, if you're honest, that's kind of surprising. I mean, you're new to the job, say, or you're new to a neighborhood, just moved. You're a new parent, or you, and you start to look around. Everyone seems so much smarter so much more efficient, so much kinder. Everyone seems to have a knowledge of how life works and their lives just seem great, right? And suddenly you just don't feel all that special these days, you know, when the meeting or the classroom or the playground. And, you know, you're officially maybe in a position like management or your children are quickly becoming teenagers or you're an almost adult and you can just feel the adulting coming on and you feel like you just can't keep up, right? You feel like inside you feel absolutely invisible, left behind. You're just not sure anymore you've got what it takes. You look at your house, you look at your car, you look at the decisions that are looming for December let alone January, and you feel weightless. You feel inadequate. You feel insignificant. But this is the delight of what God's offering here, isn't it? He's offering it to Mary of all people, and he's offering it to you and me of all people. God is offering us God's favor, his free grace. It's very clear in the Greek. The word in the Greek of verses 28 and 30 is giving favor. Literally, it's keratao. It's a verb form of the noun charis. And charis means grace. So he's giving grace. And as Mary's resume in our private moments demonstrate, grace is unmerited favor. It's unrelenting, joy-filled happiness about the fact that you even exist. And it's certainly not conditional. There are no qualifications. 
but it's not even unconditional, right? It's not just that you're doing great. It's not you at your best. It's not you in neutral that gets this. It's contra-conditional. Grace is that much more. God loves us in the midst of who we are and our most private devastating moments, our biggest, snottiest, kicking and screaming spiritual hissy fit. That's where God loves us too. He loves us when we're shouting towards other people, including him. He loves us when we give the silent treatment to other people, even including him. God's love is that deep. It's not just a pat on the head. It's not just I'm secretly disappointed in your choices kind of love. He turns over heaven and earth. He travels all the way to what used to be a backwater town near Charlotte, no more than 2,000 people, but now it's turned into a nearly unaffordable housing boom near Charlotte called Lake Norman. And he turns, he comes there and the God eternal back in that day to a town just like the town that we used to be, he emptied himself of his heavenly glories. And he entered into a young woman's womb just to hang out with you, just to be close to me and you. And the reason for God's love that it can be so absolutely unmerited in a world that runs off of merits and demerits is the promise of verses 31 through 33. Mary's son and the son of the most high, God. God, man, the great king who reigns forever of a kingdom that has no end. He is the little boy you shall call Jesus for he saves his people from, his sin, from their sins. Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection all merit God's favor for us. Jesus draws God to us. And the overwhelming, all at once, God of everything becomes this tender and tireless dad, ever ready to be near. Even leaning into the night to listen over us for our small breathing sighs in the middle of the night. But like Mary, we have our questions, don't we, about all this? Some of you are just wrestling inside already about this. <laughs> we want to know the mechanics behind God's favor. How in the world does this work out? Like Mary in verses 34 through 37, we want to know how God's favor works. Part two, or point two of our sermon this morning. Look, remember that the angel Gabriel has told Mary that she and many others will be highly favored and rescued from this world's dead ends because in the words of Silo Jones, God who flung the plants into space and kept them whirling around and around, the God who made the universe with just a word, the one who could do anything at all, he's making himself small and coming down as a baby. And Mary replies to this by saying, wait, God is sending me a baby to rescue the world? How will this all work since I'm a virgin? Literally, in the passage is original Greek. It says, how will this be since I do not know a man? Mary's question in verse 34 is actually a really intelligent question, isn't it? I mean, it's the exact same question that we have, if we're honest, when we look at this passage. How scientifically, how biologically can someone have a child without having sexual relations? 
At the very least, this question shows us that ancient peoples, early Christians, were not nincompoops. Okay? They didn't just like think they weren't gullible little children that didn't have science and technology and thought, well, I'll believe anything. Okay? That's not what first Christians, century Christians did. First century Christians did not believe in the virgin birth of Mary just because they didn't know any better. That line of thinking is just us and our 21st century snobbery looking down at the past. What's more, notice verses 35 to 37 that Gabriel is not angry with Mary, that she asks questions. <laughs> he doesn't find, he doesn't sit there and say, oh, Mary, next, let's find another virgin in the line. You over there in a different town. He doesn't find another person to make the, mar- the mother of Jesus. He doesn't, honestly, he doesn't kick Mary out of the church. Christianity at its finest and in truth has always advocated honest, not blind faith, right? From the very beginning and the first follower of Jesus, that is Mary, this has been true up to the very present time. And this is because in the words of the theologian John McKay, faith is never blind acceptance. To have questions and experience doubts is not the same as unbelief. But there's a difference between the kind of honest doubts expressed by Mary here, seeking after the truth and understanding, versus the kind of dishonest doubts that we maybe saw with Zechariah that dismiss faith and truth claims, that don't, that don't want to do the hard, soul-searching work about what makes us feel uncomfortable. Look, it's human to have doubts, right? The question is, what do you do? What do I do with these doubts? Like, if you call yourself a Christian, is your faith seeking after understanding? Do we think of faith as a starting point for learning more about God and more about this world? Do we feel permission to get curious? Like Mary to ask, how will this be? Or uh, maybe whether you identify yourself as a Christian or not, do you see faith as something that sort of ends all conversation, that cuts off exploration, that cuts off learning? You know, the idea that I have faith becomes an excuse for staying bored in the shallow end of life. Or I have faith, maybe we fear what happens after we've asked God our most difficult questions. What then? What next? Our passage tells us that we ask our hardest questions, the but how will this be kind of questions. And God doesn't just have Abraham, sorry, doesn't just have Gabriel disappear on the spot like too late, too much. It doesn't really just sort of a merely applaud, like, I'm so glad you're asking a question. <laughs> no, he actually answers the question, right? Often when we ask our hardest questions, God invites us into his wonder, the wonder that he possesses in his mystery. And so in verse 35, God through Gabriel answers the pressing sex education question behind the scenes, doesn't he? But he does so mysteriously. We don't get the sort of graphic um, you know, physical, metaphysical description of what is going to take place. But God does tell us and Mary enough to get the gist, right? The most high will overshadow you. Overshadow is that same word that's used at the very beginning of creation where the spirit's hovering over the deeps. Overshadow is the same word that is used of the smoke in the temple that signifies God's glory and his presence. And then we're also told this important statement. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
look, that really flusters some of us. It does. The whole scene does. I mean, look, our hope for meaningful relationship with God and with each other and with the world and with ourselves, all of this comes down to a miracle. What gives? Really? And I get that. And so does God. And that's why Gabriel also tells Mary about Elizabeth and her pregnancy, that she's no longer barren. So in his full answer, Gabriel is actually telling us two really important things. First, Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. The Old Testament is filled with very specific predictions that the virgin's baby and Elizabeth's child all fulfill. I mean, all you have to do is just reread the call to worship from Psalm 89, or look at, look at Isaiah 7, or keep going through most of Isaiah, and you'll find prediction after prediction after prediction that God, through Jesus, has fulfilled, and, and through John the Baptist has fulfilled. But second, if we really allow God to be the God of the universe, creator of everything, you know, scientific laws, history, a miracle like a virgin birth is well within God's abilities. A miracle like the virgin birth is well within his abilities. For instance, science isn't really equipped to determine whether a miracle could actually happen, right? Because science tests phenomena that are by definition not miraculous one-time-off events. Science deals with repeated, predictable occurrences, not miracles by definition. So look, yes, the virgin birth is highly improbable. No one can test that. But that's not actually the same as saying it's impossible. What does it look like for us to see the virgin birth in light of a God who is actually God? Right? A God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts as the heaven is from the earth. What if in the words of J.J. Van Oosterzee, the laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. The laws of nature are threads which he holds in his hand and he shortens and lengthens at will. Suddenly, nothing is impossible with God. And this is what's so amazing about our passage, really, right? We can just see one historical person, Mary, really wrestle with the Bible's definition of who God is and also very real and serious doubts. As we see in verse 38, this person, Mary, lives out of God's favor, our third and final point. According to this verse, Mary submits her will to God's will. And that surrender of her life ambitions is a big deal. She had planned to live an ordinary, scandal-free, small-town life. But instead, by faith, Mary wears a baby bump that would have been the equivalent of the scarlet letter in that day and time, right? She's 13 years old. She's unwed. She's pregnant by a man no one can actually name. But notice that God's will, in this case, in living by God's will, is not like a Ouija board. It's not like feeling the force like a Christian Jedi. But it's also not so sort of blueprinted, like all we need to do is wear bracelets that say, what would Mary do? Rather, instead, it's living as Mary puts it, according to your God's word. God's will is clearly, specifically revealed in his words to us, the Bible. And this is yet another reason to bring all of ourselves, all of our faith, 
all of our doubts, all of our questions to the Bible. That's God's revealed and holy words to us. But getting to that place of total surrender is so difficult. <laughs> it's, it's so difficult even in the season, isn't it? I think so. feels like that for me. Certainly it starts with seeing God as the kind of God who can do the miraculous. But I think we've got to be even deeper. It's got to also include God as the kind of God who looks upon us with grace, with love-struck favor, who wants to hunker down and actually be with us in what we're going through. You know, I've tried to work out what actually qualified me for being in a seventh grade writing competition. <laughs> and I, I don't really think there was a reason based on my body of work. <laughs> I think what actually ended up happening, this is the best I can get up to about what my teachers were up to. I think they all just started to just start, they kind of got together at a conference and they decided to start treating me like they wanted me to be. They decided that they selected me as someone who cared about learning and called me that even though I didn't care about learning at the time. And that's the grace that actually made me learn to care about so much, including school. And it worked, it changed my life for the better. And here's the question, what about you? Is there a moment in your life that you can point to that someone treated you like you didn't deserve? They picked up the bill or they didn't, uh, they didn't give up on you, even when you gave up on yourself. And it changed you for the good. God works in a higher and better way, right? His undeserved and thoroughgoing favor changed people like Mary, and it changes us even today. You and I are favored by God, because, not because of something that we bring to the table. We're favored by God because of something that he brought to this earth and now brings to God the Father on the regular. His life for ours, forever. So instead of willing ourselves, right? Instead of the season kind of getting guilty and doing another short-term, less than successful surrender, I want to pray to God. I want you to pray to God with me that he would show us what he sees when he looks at us. About who I am and about who he is in that moment. Because when I imagine the way that God sees me properly, how God and all of his sophistication and power and majesty hunkered down to crawl as a baby and to die on a cross like a beaten man. That Jesus did all this and he endures what we're going through on the daily basis, the indignities, the shame, the hurt. He did all those things just to be with you, to be with us forever and for us forever. I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to take my ambitions and make them God's ambitions, to choose God's ambitions, because being treated as the son of the most high, Jesus, only makes me actually want to act like the son of the most high, Jesus. I wanna start picking up the bill for those who can't afford it. I want to start to not give up on the people I love, even when they stink at loving me right now. 
Or here's how the singer-songwriter John Guerra puts it to God. It's a prayer, but it's also a song. Show me what you see when you look at me. Show me what is real more than what I feel. We have stains, it's true, but when your light shines through, we all look like stained glass windows to you. We all look like stained glass windows. So shine, 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 till you're all we see. Shine, 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 till you're, you are all we see. That's our prayer. That's what's gonna change us this season. That's what changes the world, is God's favor to people like Mary and to people like you and me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your passage and your scriptures to us. And I pray that they would impact us. Lord, prevent the eye roll, the shrug, catch us and hold us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.